Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and thanks for finding us. If this is your first time in, I hope you enjoyed today's guest and conversation enough to download the archive of the previous episodes. And if you're back or you're a subscriber, much appreciated. I know there are hundreds of thousands of these things out there, so your time and choices are important. I hope you find or have found that what we're doing here at Hardball is different than most everything else out there in the sports podcasting world. We don't do fantasy. We don't do lists. We don't do numbers, real or imagined. We don't read stories. We don't regurgitate other people's stuff. These are simply firsthand accounts and recollections from the men who played the game, some Hall of Famers and others like today's guests who played with and against some of the greatest in the game and were a part of or witnessed history. I can't stress enough that what I'm attempting to do here is simple. Create an audio history that can live well beyond these men themselves because they have earned at least that much. Just as important, sometimes overtly and sometimes subtly, America's history is very much interjected in these conversations. Today's guest will spell out in story an example of anti-Semitism in America of the 1930s that of course found its way into Major League ballparks. And it's an incredible story concerning one of the greatest to ever play the game. One thing I ask of you, and look, I know no one likes homework, is this. If you haven't, subscribe on your podcast provider of choice. If you listen on Apple, if you can spend a minute and rate and review, thanks so much. And most importantly, if you can share through any method, text to a friend, a call to a family member, a brother, uncle, or dad to let them know that they might enjoy what's happening here or through any method of social media, and Lord knows there's enough negative out there, how about pointing people in the direction of something positive? Throw the link out there and let's see what happens. I just looked at the list of gentlemen who made up the first 17 episodes of Hardball. 13 Hall of Famers and others would include Bobby Richardson, a World Series MVP, who played in one of the most famous games, Mazeroski's walk-off, and who had a front-row seat for Marison Mantle's chase of Babe Ruth in 1961, and he tells the story of those and more. Johnny Roseboro, one of my favorites, the catcher for the Dodgers, a man who caught a couple of Sandy's no-hitters and was involved in the most infamous incident in baseball's history, and told the story of it and spoke of the men he loved who wore the Dodger uniform. Ed Cranepool and Ron Swoboda, the team that I grew up watching my dad root for after the Dodgers left, they relived with us the first day of National League Baseball coming back to New York in 1962 after a five-year spell where there was none after the Giants and Dodgers moved west after 1957. They also discussed the only World Series that has been dubbed a miracle and the story of the greatest worst to first in the game's history. Bo Jackson, well, enough said. Today's guest isn't a Hall of Famer, at least not enshrined in the big one in Cooperstown. But I can tell you this, the only other person who I've spoken to whose life and stories equal his 
is the great Buck O'Neill. Buck's recollection, visually painting the picture of both the Negro Leagues and its players and separating fact from fiction, is arguably the most valuable account of a time and place that was both exhilarating while also embarrassing to those who allowed segregation to exist for as long as it did. Our guest today, Eldon Leroy Auker, won 130 games in his 10-year career, 126 complete games, by the way, no small feats in any 10-year period or any career. But his career, which started in 1933, included the following. Playing for three Hall of Fame managers, Bucky Harris, Mickey Cochran, and Joe Cronin. He was a teammate of Hall of Famers, Hank Greenberg, Charlie Geringer, Al Simmons, Goose Goslin, Jimmy Fox, Bobby Doerr, Lefty Grove, and of course Ted Williams, and was a lifelong friend to them all. He won a World Series in 1935 with the Tigers and had the distinction of being the last living pitcher to have faced Babe Ruth before his passing in 2006. And wait until you hear that story. He came from a town of less than 400, a rural Kansas town that didn't have enough boys to field a team in football or baseball, yet he found his way to Kansas State, where Grantland Rice named him a football All-American and where the Bears of a young NFL tried to sign him, only to lose out to the Tigers after other major league teams put their offers on the table again, those stories included. He left the game on his own terms in 1942 to go into business, the business of manufacturing parts for fighter planes during World War II, and started a post-game life that included playing golf with multiple presidents of the United States and building a multi-million dollar business that ensured his place as one of the most successful former players in the game's history. Oh, he also has the distinction, by the way, of being named Kansas State's greatest athlete ever. I'm extremely proud that we spoke to Mr. Auker before he published his first book, This conversation was a follow-up to that first one, just as sleeper cars and flannel uniforms was coming out. He will speak of his relationship with Ted, how difficult it was to see him at the end. A Lou Gehrig story that is as good as it gets when it comes to the on the field and how it almost changed the game's history, and another that you can hear still haunting him 60-plus years after a chilling realization when it came to Lou's health. I spoke to Mr. Auker a few times in a five-year period between this conversation and his passing. To simply say hello, to ask how he and his wife were doing, and just to let him know that I think he led an incredible life, and it was appreciated that he shared it with us the way he did. Here is some of that sharing. I think Governor Reagan was more thrilled to meet Eldon Arker than Eldon was to meet uh, Governor Reagan. And he said, Eldon Arker, my God, am I glad to see you. He said, you probably don't remember me, but I'll never forget you. You know what's great about Eldon, and, and I love him for it, and it's his recall. And, and his way with words. And I say he was a successful man in so many parts of life. For me, it's like back to the future. It's like I've gone in the ship and gone back to the 30s and the 40s in, era, in an era of baseball that I only read about in the sporting news or some books. I've introduced that elder to a lot of people in this organization, and uh, they were all in awe of him. Here they are, the Fighting Tigers, American League champions for the second year in a row. Mickey Cochran, the genius who piloted the Bengals to victory. Tiger Hank Greenberg, 36 homers with clouding King of his team. Tommy Bridges, pitching ace, 121, lost nine. Eldon Offer, who clinched the series for Detroit. All those Tigers. Six years ago, I threw my first pitch as a Tiger from this very pitcher's mound that we see tonight. This flag symbolizes 88 years of baseball here at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull. 
Behind me stands over 70 years of Tiger history. Each of us has touched this flag today as this ballpark has touched not only the players, but the many millions of fans who have watched the game at Tiger Stadium. Brad, take this flag to Comerica Park, your new home, and take with it The boyhood dreams, the perseverance, and the competitive desire it takes to become a Detroit Tiger. Never forget us, for we live on by those that carry on the Tiger's tradition, and who so proudly wear the old English D. To wear this uniform is a great privilege and an honor. And behalf, behalf of the old Tigers, we ask the young Tigers of today and tomorrow to wear this uniform with pride and never, on the field or off, allow your personal conduct to defile or disgrace the great tradition this uniform represents. And always remember, Brad, that once a Tiger, always a Tiger. Thank you, and God bless all of the Tigers in the past, the present, and in the future. And our God bless our fans who make this whole affair possible. Thank you very much. God bless you. I'm joined tonight on Legends of the Game by a gentleman who I deeply enjoyed a conversation we had last year. As a matter of fact, one of the most talked about interviews we did on Hardball the first couple of seasons was my conversation with this gentleman, Mr. Eldon Auker joins us tonight on Budweiser's Hardball. Mr. Auker, how are you today? I'm fine, Chris. How are you? Very good, sir. And I must tell you, I'm, I'm sure you just heard me mention it, um, a lot of people might not have known your name, but when you and I got through with our conversation, I did get a lot of response about some of the stories you told, and quite honestly, a few people asked me to direct them to some of the sites where I found some more information on you. So it must be nice to know that the name does live on, and you've actually ensured that in a certain way. You've written a book. Yes, uh, we came out with this book uh, a week ago last Wednesday, I guess, called uh, uh, Sleeping Cars and uh, Flannel Uniforms. Sleeper Cars and Flannel Uniforms. Well, uh, again, I very much look forward to reading it, and let's talk a little bit about Eldon Auker's story, if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, fact or fiction? Not just a submarine pitcher, an underhanded pitcher. Yeah, a submarine. Submarine? Yeah. And how low did you actually go? Right directly underneath, as low as I could go. Now, why do you think, you know, we've talked to Phil Necro in the past about why more people don't throw a knuckleball. Why do you believe more pitchers aren't throwing sidearm or even underhanded? Well, I don't know. Mine came about uh, because of injury that I had in football at Kansas State University. Uh, when I went down there to, to college or the university, I was throwing directly overhand, but I played three years of, uh, of varsity football at Kansas State University in the Big Six Conference, and I got my shoulder knocked down, what they call, we called it knockdown those days, I guess they call it a separation mm -hmm. today, and it became muscle-bound and so on, and I couldn't, I couldn't go over the top anymore, and I was throwing sidearm. Now, do you think you would have been in line, and it's kind of strange, I spoke to Stan Musial about this, 
fortuitous injury that he had as a pitcher who also played a little bit of outfield, he admits that if not for that injury and being moved to the outfield every day, he does not make it to the major leagues. Do you think you would have made it to the big leagues as an overhanded pitcher? Well, I doubt it. I doubt it. I had a good fastball. I had a good curveball. But uh, uh, when when I signed, uh, they sent, the Tigers sent me down to Decatur in the 3-I league. And Bob Coleman was a manager down there, and he was quite a well-known uh, manager for young men, you know. And he saw me throw, and he said, Eldon, he said, uh, if you're going to pitch in the major, le- major leagues, you've got to have control. He says, most sidearmers, I was throwing sidearm due to my injury, mm-hmm. and he says, most sidearmers have trouble with control, hitting that target 17 inches wide from 60 feet and 6 inches. And he said, there used to be a pitcher for the New York anchor named Carl Mays. And he said, he threw directly underhanded. He said, if you could line up, just turn upside down rather than going over the top, going right down underneath and line up with a plate from underneath, he said, I think you'd have better control. And so uh, I tried it. Well, it, it worked pretty good. I, it felt pretty natural, and it came around uh, pretty easy for me to do it. So I threw batting practice for four or five days, and Quincy, Illinois, they were leading the league at that time in the three-eye league. They came to town, and Bob said, you're going to pitch... Uh, against Quincy, and you're going to pitch nine innings underhanded. He said, I don't care how many hits they get off from you or how many you walk, but you're out there for nine innings. Well, I pitched nine innings underhanded, and I struck out, I think, 15 men or 16. They got a couple of hits, and I won the ball game. I think <laughs> one to nothing. I shut them out. Now, you mentioned Kansas State. We'll talk about your yep. college career in a second, but you also had another choice. It was between professional baseball and what? Uh, football. I... Uh, uh, the uh, Chicago Bears. They sent uh, Bronk Nagurski and a fellow by the name of Bert Pearson out to Manhattan, Kansas, to talk to me about signing a contract with the Chicago Bears uh, in the fall of 1932. That's when I graduated. Mm-hmm. And uh, they offered me a contract for $500 a game and 12-game guarantee. And, uh, of course, professional football in 1932 wasn't like it is today. And uh, it was a, a game-to-game deal, but it was a it was a 12-game guarantee, which is six thousand dollars. Do you think the Tigers would have waited for you to maybe get football out of your system? No, I uh, signed. I decided that uh, uh, when I signed with the Tigers for four hundred and fifty dollars a month, which is a lot of money in those days. As soon as I graduated, I left immediately from the from the stage with my diploma. I got in an automobile, and they took me to Kansas City, and I was in Detroit the next morning. Hmm. Mr. Auker, let's go back to Kansas State for a second. Uh, All-American, I believe, in three sports. Yes. Uh, I was in college humors, All-American. I was the first one to make uh, – there was a magazine called College Humor in those days. And uh, uh, I was selected in all, to be all Amer- on their All-American team in three sports, basketball, football, and baseball. Hmm. Um, growing up where you grew up, was baseball the sport that was most talked about with the neighborhood kids? No, I was born and raised in a little town out in western Kansas, about 300 people, 350. And uh, we never had a, uh, the school did not have a baseball team or anything like Little League or anything like that. We just didn't have enough kids, you know. And uh, I started uh, uh, pitching when about 15 years old. And uh, my uncle, I had an uncle, Uncle Frank Brunk, and he was a, a pitcher at one time of some renown out in that part of the country. He showed me how to throw a curveball. 
And so at 15, why on Sundays, I started pitching for the town team, which was made up of all men. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother used to get upset because she said, you're out there playing uh, with those men on Sunday. And said, you ought to be playing with the kids and going to Sunday school. Now, was that a paid situation, pitching for the town no, league? No, no, no. That was just uh, that was just recreational, just a town team. And a little, we played all all the towns around there. You know, every 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 little town out there had a had a baseball team. Now I remember you telling me a story when you decided you wanted to go to college, and actually you were pre med, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, they could not give you anything except a job. That's right. And what was that job? I worked in a drugstore for a dollar a day. Every morning I woke up at five o'clock in the morning and. I lived about a mile and a half from the drugstore, and I'd run to the drugstore, and I had to have it mopped out and swept out, and the soda fountain all cleaned up by 8 o'clock. I did that for four years. Now, I remember you telling me also, I believe, that they weren't really big on raises at that drugstore. They what? They weren't really big on raises. <laughs> well, I, I got it for four years at, a, at the same dollar a, dollar a day. <laughs> so and either when, they were overpaying. When I worked behind a soda fountain, I got an extra 25 cents an hour. Well, they were either overpaying you your freshman year or underpaying you your senior year because guess, that wage I didn't change. So. I never thought about that. <laughs> now, well, when you do sign with the Detroit Tigers, 1933, you make your debut. Did you know anything about Major League Baseball at that point when you actually put on a Tigers uniform? When I signed a contract with the Detroit Tigers, I had no idea whether they were in the American League or National League or anything about professional baseball. No. Now, did you know names like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig? Well, I knew, yes. I've heard of mm -hmm. those names, yeah. Babe Ruth, that was, I think that's about the only name I knew. And when did you realize that eventually and pretty shortly you'd actually be pitching against Babe Ruth and the New York Yankees? Well, I, I didn't know when because when I signed with the Tigers, I reported to Detroit, and Mr. Navin said, uh, uh, I understand you're thinking about playing football. And I said, yes, I have a chance to play with the Bears. And, he said, well, I'm going to go out of the room here for a minute. When I come back, you tell me whether you're going to play baseball or football. If you're going to play football, he says, I'll send you back to Kansas. He says, you're not going to uh, – you're, you're a liability to me until you come up here and start winning baseball games. <laughs> so he well, said, I can't afford to pay you and, and uh, have you play football. Now, were you in this room by yourself? Yes, just the two of us, Mr. Navin. Had so, you taken that trip and decided what you wanted to do, or was that really no, just – decided right there. He said, when you, I'm going to walk out of the room and you tell me whether you want to play baseball or football. Were you nervous? Well, I don't remember. Uh, I know I was uh, thinking pretty fast, but I thought <laughs> $450 a month in my hand right now was better than possibly $6,000 in the fall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now you were also, I believe, saving up to go to medical school, were you not? That's right. That's right. I, wanted, I got all of my pre-med stuff at Kansas State University. They didn't have a medical school, and uh, I wanted to go to medical school, but... I had to work my way through college, and uh, if I went ahead with uh, medicine, why well, uh, I'd have to, you know, work full time at that. I couldn't mm -hmm. work and 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 study medicine. Now you come up in the, to the big leagues in 1933, and you had some pretty good success, and so did that team the first couple of years there. Yeah, we uh, well 33 uh, when I came up, we finished I think in fifth place or something like that, or sixth. And then uh, Mickey Cochran joined. Bucky Harris was a manager in '33, and uh, in 1934, Mr. Navin bought Mickey, Mickey Cochran from the Athletics and bought Goose Gosselin from the Washington Senators. Now Mickey Cochran becomes a player manager, correct? He's a player manager. Yeah, he's a catcher, and uh, 
and our leader, and a great one. And things turn around pretty quickly in 34. We won the pennant in 34 and lost uh, the World Series to the Cardinals in seven games. We came back and won the pennant in 1935 and beat the Chicago Cubs for the World Championship. And you pitched in a couple of World Series. I beat the Cardinals my first game in the series, and the seventh game, Dizzy Dean shut us out 11 to nothing. And uh, in the next year against Chicago, uh, we opened up in Detroit, played two games, and then we went to Chicago, and I opened up against Chicago, and I went against Bill Lee, and we were both taken out, I think, in the seventh inning. The score was tied two and two, and we ended up winning the ball game, I think, mm. in the twelfth inning. Mr. Hawker, you mentioned sleeper cars in the title of your book. I don't know why I did this, but I had asked Dan Usual yesterday about those train rides. Did you enjoy those? There was nothing like them. I'm telling you that... Uh, we would come off the baseball field in hot weather, you know, playing. And uh, every every hotel in that at that particular time was not air-conditioned, you know. And when we walked on that train, the air, the air it was all air-conditioned. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, we had the dining room there and a dining car. And, uh, and it was we were just like a bunch of brothers. We lived together. We slept together. We played together. And we fought together. And it was... Uh, get on that train and hear it at night going clickety, 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 click, you know. It just kind of puts you to sleep. And I'm not very sure about this, but I'm assuming there probably weren't a lot of players in professional baseball who were college-educated. Did you fit in coming from where you came from, town that small, and also coming from the educated background that you did? Well, uh, I think in my little town, I think I was the first one that graduated from college, as far as I know, outside of some teachers that they brought in from the outside, you know. And uh, on our team, we had Marvin Owen, the third baseman, and I think he graduated uh, uh, from uh, in a school in Colorado, I mean, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hank Greenberg had gone to college in New York. Uh, Charlie Ganger had spent a year, I think, and went to Michigan State or something. And Mickey Cochran went to Boston University, I think it was. Hmm. So you did have a couple of players who were actually college? Yeah. Oh, yes. Another was Gerald Walker, who uh, come from Old Miss. Uh, he was a Southern boy. So all far reaches of the country as well. Yeah, that's it, right. Is that kind of strange? You're 22 years old. You're used to a, a lifestyle. Now, I know you went to Kansas State, and that would absolutely increase your social parameters. Hmm. But is it strange to be 22 and then to be thrust into a situation where you were dealing with personalities and cultures and everything else? Well, uh, it was to me a little bit because uh, I was born out in western Kansas, you know, and uh, didn't know anything about baseball. And uh, we never had anything like uh, the southern boys, you know, Mm -hmm. for instance, the south against the north and all that. And uh, I didn't understand that. Another thing I didn't understand was... uh, uh, the uh, the Jewish element. Mm-hmm. Anti-Semitism. I was going to ask you about yeah. that with Hank Greenberg because a great documentary just recently made about Hank Greenberg and right. his struggles. And Jackie Robinson, certainly because he deserves it, uh, is talked about in the way he is for breaking the color barrier. But Hank Greenberg also suffered you know, more than just barbs tossed his way. Well, uh, I guess he did. I played with Hank for six years. I loved him like a brother. We were very, very close. I knew his dad and mother and his brother and his sister, the whole family. And there was never a finer man that ever played the game than Hank Greenberg, a real gentleman. And uh, 
I, uh, on our ball club, uh, him being Jewish meant absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Did it mean some things to some towns you went into, though? Well, uh, I guess so. Uh, we never paid much attention mm-hmm. to that, and, uh, and uh, Hank didn't, didn't either. I only saw Hank one time uh, really uh, get upset, and I didn't know that until after it's all over. Do you remember what that situation was? Oh, very well. We were in Detroit, and we were playing the Chicago White Sox. And uh, uh, something happened. Hank flied out or something, and he was walking back to the dugout, and some player on the White Sox said something to him, uh, something to the effect like uh, uh, he called him a, a Jew so-and-so, you know, mm-hmm. and made a slurring remark. And uh, so when, we, after, when the game was over, uh, our clubhouses at that time was right across the aisle. From, we, we had a common runway, and our clubhouse was on the left, and, and the door on the right was the visitor's clubhouse. And uh, my locker was right next to Hank's, and Tommy Bridges was next to mine. And we'd come in, and the usual thing, you know, we'd sit down on the stool and undress and everything. Well, Hank came in after the game and uh, put on his shower slippers and took off his outer shirt, not his sweatshirt underneath, and uh, he uh, just walked out the door. Well, we, I just suppose he's going out to meet some friends because there's always friends coming around mm-hmm. Smith, you know. And uh, he was gone for a little while, and he came back in and uh, took his shower and got dressed and left, and it was just the usual thing. Well, Teddy Lyons was uh, the pitcher on the White Sox and a very good friend of mine. And the next day, he said to me, he said, boy, he said, was it that Greenberg ever upset? I said, what do you mean? He said, did you know that he came in our clubhouse after the ball game yesterday? He said he walked in, he opened up the door, and he said he stood in front of all of us, and he said, I want that guy that called me a Jew, a yellow Jew so-and-so, stand up. And he said he walked around the entire clubhouse and looked at every one of us, and nobody moved, and he stopped and he looked at us again and walked out the door. I did not know anything about that until Teddy Lyons told hmm. me about it. We knew nothing about it in the clubhouse. Hank never said one word to us. What an interesting story, because I guess at that point, uh, Hank Greenberg, while maybe not a guy who would do that often, made his point that day, and I'm sure point well taken by the Chicago White Sox. Well, you're not kidding. And the guy that said that was the luckiest guy in the world, because Hank would have killed him. Now, you also told me a story, Mr. Auker, and uh, let's again separate some fact from fiction, as I'm joined tonight by Eldon Auker on... Hardball's Legends of the Game. Um, a pitch you threw hits Lou Gehrig, <laughs> breaks a toe, and this was, by the way, in the middle of what we've all come to know was the streak. Yeah, that's right. What year was that? Uh, that was, I think, 1930, uh, let me see, about 35, I think. Okay. 35 or 36. I forgot just exactly what year it was. And what exactly happened, and what might have well, been the ramifications? I was a I was an underhand pitcher, and my best I was a sinker ball pitcher, you know. And Lou Gehrig was a low ball hitter, and I mean a strong low ball hitter. You get anything below his belt, and he'd rake you right off the pitcher's mound with it. And uh, so uh, I had a little problem with him because you know I was pitting my strength against his, and so I finally decided that 
he used to step in the box and he'd take his left foot and he'd kind of screw it into the ground and then he'd bring his right foot down and plant it. And he had these big legs of his and they're just like a rock. And so I decided that I would loosen him up a little bit by throwing at his feet. <laughs> get those feet loose so he couldn't get a good toehold on me. And so I started throwing at him and he was skipping the rope, we called it. And he said to me, after one of the games or two games, he said, damn you, he says, uh, you're throwing at my feet, aren't you? And I said, well, what do I want to throw at your feet for? If I want to hit you, I'll hit you in the head where it won't hurt you. And he says, yeah, he said, I know what you're doing. And uh, so that's what I wanted him to know. Well, one day we're in the Yankee Stadium. I was working a game against Gomez. And I guess in about the third or fifth inning or something, I threw a pitch on the inside, and he didn't get his foot out of the way. And I hit him right on the end of the toe with a, you know, with a, with a fastball. And he went to the ground and hold his, holding his foot, and he had kind of a high voice. And Bill McGowan was working the ball game. And uh, he said, Bill, he said, I told you he was throwing at me. He said, he broke my damn foot. <laughs> and Bill said, ah, oh, he said, get up. I'm going down to first base. You're not hurt. <laughs> well, you know, it did. Evidently, it fractured his toe. And he came out there, and he played with, a, with an aluminum cast over that toe of his. And he continued his streak. Now, I don't know whether he played the full games or not, but he, he continued to play, and I saw him. And the next time we went in, he said, "Not damn!" He said, "You broke my toe." <laughs> well, you had a game plan. You weren't going to you weren't going to sway from your game plan. No. Why let Lou Gehrig beat you? I say that all the time with today's players. Why are you going to let one of the best beat you? Well, uh, you, you know, he was going to beat me. Why, yeah. Why should I say that? That plate belonged to me. <laughs> now, you also told a a story about in Detroit right before Lou Gehrig was diagnosed. I guess before the Mayo Clinic gave him information about what was actually going on physically well, with his body. That's a story that's in this book. I, I have this in my book. Uh, in 1939, I was traded to the uh, Boston Red Sox for Pinky Higgins. And uh, uh, the opening game, uh, the Yankees opened, opened up against us in Boston. And I had been running in the outfield. Lefty Grove was pitching the first game. And I'd been running in the outfield, and I went in the clubhouse to change my shirt. And we had a common runway uh, coming out of our, uh, both of our clubhouses on the same side of the runway. And we used this common runway going out through the dugout on the field. And uh, Lou was a guy that, uh, well, you know, I'd been playing against him for six years and a very good friend, and we knew each other. We used to wrestle around. He used to get a hold of him, you know, a hammerlock or something. And, He'd lift you off your feet. He was so strong. Now, he was, he was physically imposing for his oh, day, was he not? Oh, he was a powerful man. And, God, he had a, I don't know, his neck must have been about a 17-inch neck. He had a good neck on him, you know. But anyway, uh, I had, uh, the game was just about getting underway. We'd take infield. The game was about ready to start, and I came out and down the runway, and Lou was standing on the lower step of the dugout smoking a cigarette. And we were the only two. I came down the runway, and, in the, and I walked up behind him, and I grabbed him by the neck. And usually, you know, he'd lift me off my feet or something. Well, this time, he just folded up, and he went down to his knees, and he said, oh, my God, don't do that. Well, I helped him up. He could hardly get up. And I said, what the hell's the matter with you? He said, I don't know, but he said, I'm so weak. He said, I've had a terrible spring. He said, I can't hit the ball out of the infield. 
And I said, well, when, when did you notice this? He said, it started right after the season last year. He said, I've had a terrible winter. He says, I'm just, I'm weak. He said, I don't know what the problem is. Well, anyway, uh, I don't know. He played uh, a few innings in, in that game, I guess. But anyway, that was on Tuesday. And we played Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then they went into Detroit to play uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in Detroit. Well, I read in the paper that when, I think it's on Friday, that they took him to Mayo Brothers and they found out and diagnosed mm -hmm. him with the, with the, uh, LS, mm. the, his disease. And uh, I, I'll never forget it. It was one of the saddest things I ever had happen to me. When four days before, you know, I had him by the neck and we were talking about it. And then to have this thing happen, it just broke my heart. And a lot of people might not realize that few days in Boston would have been the only time that I believe Ted Williams and Lou Gehrig were on the field at the same time. That's right. That's right. You're right. Because I'm just realizing the numbers. 1939 would have been Ted Williams' first I, year. I think that was the only time. In a Red Sox uniform. That's right. Now, you actually you played against and played with some of the all-time greats in baseball. Um, I've asked players of your generation and, and, you know, the 40s and 50s and even up to the 60s, when you think back, you know, you wrote the book, and I'm I'm, as I said, very much looking forward to reading it, and everybody else will give the name of the book in a few minutes again. Do you – I've asked Phil Rizzuto and some other players this question. When you go to bed at night, you mentioned the train track sound and how it will put you to sleep. You probably were so ingrained in your consciousness where it might disturb other people. It was actually soothing for oh, guys was. who rode the train. Do you think back or dream and picture yourself as a young man again? Oh, I think about it once in a while. It's you know, it's been so many years ago, and I when I left baseball, and I went into business. I was so involved in business, you know, that baseball just kind of uh, took a back seat in my mind. I guess you want to call it mm -hmm. that. Has it come back though, as you maybe gotten a little bit older? The thoughts it, and it has come back more uh, since I retired, and uh, I've been involved in various. Uh, autograph signings and things mm -hmm. like that. And as I get older, it seems uh, my age is playing a, a part in this because I am 90 years old, and uh, there's not many players around now. I think that that uh, there are three pitchers. Well, on our 1935 uh, World Championship team, there are four of us left. Mm -hmm. Ray Hayworth, our catcher, Billy Rogel, our shortstop, and and Leon Hoxett, who was a relief pitcher, and Leon's in a in a rest home. He has Alzheimer's disease. He doesn't know what time it is. And there are only four of us left out of that. Well, there must only be a handful of pitchers who actually have pitched to Babe Ruth still living as well. I uh, don't know how many. I think uh, I think that uh, Mel Harder is one, and Mel's still alive. And I think Willis Hudlin, if I if I'm not mistaken, I think Willis is still alive. But uh, Does I, it sometimes amaze you to think about, I know it's you, and maybe it's different when you actually have lived it yourself, but does it sometimes amaze you that you played in the major leagues when you did, you pitched in a World Series, you threw against Babe Ruth, you were a teammate of Ted Williams, you threw against Lou Gehrig, you were a teammate of Hank Greenberg. Do you sometimes find yourself shaking yourself saying, oh, yeah, that was me? Uh, I don't shake myself so much about it, Chris. Uh, I sometimes I I feel a little melancholy about it because you know 
I grew up with these fellows, and they were all good friends of mine. And and uh, right now is a very sad thing in my heart with Ted Williams mm -hmm. lying practically in a coma now. Such a great guy, such a powerful young man, you know. I knew him as a 20-year-old kid. Uh, Mildred and I used to have him out to our house for fried chicken, you know, for dinner, and Jimmy Fox, my roommate in Boston, and Tommy Bridges, who I roomed with for six years in Detroit. To know that they're all gone, Ted's still alive, but just barely. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, I don't know why I'm still here. Uh, with these fellas go, every day something's happening. I just got a call uh, day before yesterday and Hal White, who used to pitch for the Boston or for the Detroit Tigers, mm -hmm. I was with him at the opening, at the closing of the Tiger Stadium. Hal's a very good friend of mine, and his wife called me yesterday, and he's had a, a stroke. He's very low, and it's these things like this that I get called so often that these fellows are passing away. And it's not easy to just sit and see him go, you know. And, and do you know what Phil Rizzuto told me, by the way, Mr. Hawker, when we had talked about this? Uh, he said the thing that he misses the most is the ability to just call people up to tell right. them what's going on in their life. And That's right. That's right. That's what I miss most. Yeah. Well, I have a, a relationship here with Dominic DiMaggio. Dominic lives down here in, in, uh, uh, in West Palm, mm -hmm. and uh, he and his wife are good friends of ours, and course we keep up on on Teddy uh, how he's in it along John Henry his uh, Ted's uh, son yep is about the only contact we have and and I called John Henry and after I talked to him why well, I called Dominic and report and when Dom talks to John Henry why well, he calls me and we keep in touch that way and uh, you know it, it's sad to have to do this when you can't talk to Ted and uh, it's uh, to know that he's just lying there, and uh, it, 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 it hurts. The one another one that I lost was Charlie Garinger. Mm -hmm. Charlie and I were very dear friends, and he and his wife, Joe, we just talked to Joe night before last. My wife has been very sick, and, and uh, Joe called to see how she was, you know. And Do you, Mr. Hawker, can I ask you this? Do you consider yourself or fancy yourself a, a fairly religious man? Well... We go to church on Sundays. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fanatic, but I'm a great believer in someone bigger than I am. And and may I ask, do you believe that somewhere, wherever there is, there might be a place when people such as yourself and Ted Williams and maybe you're young again for a certain amount of the time or maybe you get to relive some of the things that you've done? Do you believe in any of that? I, uh, I, I believe there's something. There's one thing I do, I hope. I just hope that that's the case, but whether I, uh, I just don't know, you know, just, mm -hmm. I, I believe it, I just accept it. Right. I accept it. I have no proof, naturally, you know, and it's hard to say that it's a fact, but uh, I certainly have the faith that I hope that's the case. And, and I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, have you seen the movie Field of Dreams? Oh, yes. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, do you believe that maybe, I don't know, you're going to get a chance to... To pitch against some of these guys again well, in some way, shape, or form? or I don't know. There's some of them I like to pitch against, and some of them I wouldn't care about pitching against. <laughs> so you can pass over the ones who got the best of you the yeah, first time around right. and make sure you get the guys that got... Tommy Hendrick is one of them. <laughs> Tommy's still alive. You just want to stay away from him at that oh, point. I, I, I couldn't get him out for that. Well, 
Mr. Walker, uh, the name of the book again, please? Sleeper Cars and Flannel Uniforms. Do you think there's enough appreciation for... You know, because today's, you know, let's not kid ourselves. We're cynical. It's about the money. It's about the business. And I'm not dumb. I knew owners were in it to make money in 1933. I knew the World Series was a money-making proposition in 1935 for certain people, certainly the owners more than the players. But do you think enough people of your generation have expressed their joy of the game? And, and do you think people are listening? Well, I don't know. We're getting a lot of feedback on this book. I, have, uh, I had five radio interviews last week on it. And I was supposed to go to New York, and uh, I was supposed to be there four days with some radio and television mm-hmm. shows and signing books and things. And uh, there was even a talk that might be on the Today Show. But uh, this book has uh, has been received very well, much better than I thought. I, When they tried to talk me into writing it, I said, well... Who wants to read about me? Did you, you know? think it was just going to be for you and maybe some personal friends, not just yeah, the country? I, I, I really didn't mm-hmm. know. I didn't know, but uh, uh, it's just uh, it, it's been it's been just uh, a complete surprise to me. Uh, I think that probably uh, one of the reasons is is uh, the writer who worked with me is Tommy Keegan. Mm-hmm. And he's a writer on the New York Post, yes. sports writer. Yes, know him well. Do you know Tommy? Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, I read his stuff for a lot of years when I lived up in that area. Is that right? Yes, sir. Well, Tommy's a fine young man, and uh, he's a really a, a, a great kid. I, I like him very, very much. And he's the one that talked me into it. I've had I had three other fellows that tried to talk me into write, to writing this thing, just memories, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally Tom got after me, and... And we hit up a relationship, and we just clicked. Well, good for you, because and good for the people who get a chance to pick it up and read it. And I will certainly be talking about it, not just tonight, but certainly from here on out, especially when I get done. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I'm uh, very flattered to, to know that even someone's reading it. <laughs> well, as I said, uh, there are a lot of people out there who long for the day, perhaps, when things were a little bit more simplistic, not to make it over-simplistic, but... The idea of trains and, and flannel uniforms and the idea of playing baseball and doubleheaders and day games and everything else that came with that era, I think a lot of times people look back now and do miss what might be called a simpler time. Well, I think the older people, yes, and, uh, and then maybe I understand what they're telling me, that some of the young people are buying it because they did not know really what it was like back in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's like the... The story I heard the other day about uh, Grandpa taking his grandson down and said to him, he says, son, he says, let's go down and look at the choo-choo. And the kid says, what's a (laughs) choo-choo? A train, you know. Mm -hmm. And he never knew what a choo-choo was, like a locomotive. All he sees is a diesel. Right. And so there's a lot some of the young people that are interested in the history of baseball. I get a lot of uh, autograph. Uh, request for kids that, you know, they said, I've been studying the history of baseball. And uh, people, kids like that, they're interested. Well, you are certainly one of the great last links to a time and a, and a day that not many people are going to be able to tell us about firsthand. And I always appreciate the time that we've had a chance to spend together, Mr. Rocker. Well, thank you, Chris. It's been a real pleasure, and I always enjoy talking Well, to thanks. You. Let's just pick your brains for one last thing. Uh, greatest player that you ever saw? Me was the greatest player? Mm-hmm. I really, I'd, I'd have to go by positions, and uh, you know, uh, I think uh, when you try to select uh, the best at first base between Hank Greenberg and 
Jimmy Fox and Lou Gehrig and <laughs> some of those others is pretty tough. And when you talk about outfielders, when you talk about uh, Ted Williams, naturally was one of the greatest. And uh, Joe DiMaggio was one of the greatest. And there's so many great ones. I, I just couldn't select one. All right, let me ask you it this way then. Two men on, two outs, tie game. Who do you want coming up to the plate for you if you're the team that's at bat? The guy I want to pitch to? No, who's the guy that, if your team needs one base hit to win that game, oh, who would you I like see. to see come up? Well, again, I go back. <laughs> I think probably in Detroit, with men on base, probably uh, Hank Greenberg and Charlie Garinger okay. was probably as, uh, as tough as you could get. Hank was a, uh, he was a fanatic with runs batted in. And, uh, of course, so was Jimmy Fox. Yep. Well, again, Mr. Walker, I appreciate your time and, and uh, the link to the past. Sometimes it's it's different to hear it from the individuals who were part of history, and that's what we had a chance to do tonight. Today, I call this a history lesson more than anything else. Thank you, Chris. I have appreciate a, it very much. Have a great day. And listen, I hope Thanks everything gets better happy, with the wife. Have a happy Easter. Thank you. You too, sir. Thank you. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. The curtain goes up on the 1935 World Series as the fans jam Briggs Stadium to see the Detroit Tigers battle the Chicago Cubs for the World Championship. Mickey Cochran and Charlie Grimm. And let's hear from them. Well, everything is set for the opener of what should be a great World Series. The Tigers are all in shape and ready to go. I think the ball, the series will go about six games, and I hope and I feel as though the Chicago Cubs are going to come out the winner. Play ball. One ball is down. Here's the next one. And it's a line drive down to Greenberg. And he tries to get back for a double play. And he's well over the first. The Pedrick was still off. And he made a throw down the second to Logel. And Pedrick was doubled off of second. That was a peculiar play there. He's on the mound. Here's the pitch. And it's a hot one down to Logel. Logel scoops it up. Runs over to second. Goes to first. Completing a double play. Shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old.